Thanks for pressing play. And welcome to a very special episode. You see, in times uh, that are challenging, uh, one of the greatest things we all can do is contribute what we can contribute. And given it looks like we're about to be in a recession, what me, Eddie Yoon, and Nicholas Cole, a.k.a. the Category Pirates, decided to do was to write a new mini newsletter, mini book newsletter called How to Make Money in a Recession, Five Steps to Create Demand for Your Product, Service, or Platform. And we elected to make it free. So the uh, written version of this is free. Uh, There'll be a link to it in the show notes. And consider this a mini book audio read. How to Make Money in a Recession, Five Steps to Create Demand for Your Product, service, or platform. Recessions are the worst time to fight for demand, and recessions are a great time to create demand. Dear friend, subscriber, and category pirate, we are in a recession. Not officially, but it's not looking good. Stocks are down, startup valuations have plummeted, Uh, Bitcoin and Ethereum have lost more than 50% of their total value since their respective highs, back in November 2021. And sentiment around Silicon Valley is that the next 12 to 18 months, or potentially more, are going to be very challenging for companies looking to raise money. But where there is chaos, there is opportunity. Approximately 10% of companies get stronger in downturns. And you can't be in the 10% unless you do some serious thinking. Through the category lens, downturns are simple to understand and have a clear path to navigate. When times get tough, businesses, governments, households, and individuals all do the same thing. They create two lists, must-haves and nice-to-haves. Then they start cutting the nice-to-haves to lower costs as a direct response to their revenue, income, and buying power shrinking. Which means the seminal question is, what makes people put some categories, brands, products on the must-have list versus the nice-to-have list? Perceived value. Everything we value, we've been taught to value. The difference between a dumb idea and a great one, or the difference between a useful product and a useless one, is the perception we have based on what we've been taught. Don't forget, pet rocks used to be in demand. And if you don't know what they are, just Google them and you'll find out. It's a great story, and we've written about it in prior Category Pirates as well. The trick is to get your product, service, or platform on the must-have list and to be as high up on the list as possible because the higher the category is on the hierarchy of perceived value in the consumer's mind, the greater the likelihood they will keep buying from you which is why savvy leaders market the category in downturns. Because people make their lists by category first and brand second. All right, Tom, we're paying for three different streaming category services right now. Which one brand don't we need? Category first, brand second. Elon Musk was a guest on the All In podcast And he summarized the net positive effects of recessions as well. Quote, recessions are not necessarily a bad thing. I've been through a few of them. What tends to happen if you have a boom that goes on for too long, 
you get a misallocation of capital. It starts raining money on fools, basically. Any dumb thing gets money. And at some point, it gets out of control. And the bullshit companies go bankrupt. And the ones that are building useful products prosper. When most people hear the word recession, they imagine the housing crisis of of 2008 or the dot-com bubble of the late 90s and of all the businesses that went under as a result. Never mind what happened during COVID, of course. But what doesn't get talked about enough are the incredible companies that emerge out of these challenging times as well. Google and Amazon both came out of the dot-com bubble in the 90s, as did hundreds of other world-changing companies. And Uber, Spotify, Airbnb, Square, and dozens of other next-gen technology companies were founded between 2006 and 2009, right in the middle of the greatest financial crisis of the modern era. Recessions are pressure cookers that rid the system of businesses failing to live up to the value they are promising to society. Here's how it happens. The company downturn cycle of doom. Step one, recession hits, stocks crash, capital dries up, investors stop playing as many hands and start sitting out of deals, consumers tighten their belts and begin to examine their spending habits. The music comes to a halt and everyone in the room stops dancing. Step two, demand falls. The result of all of this tightening is that consumers spend less. Suddenly, that vacation you were planning and that Airbnb you were looking at goes from a need to a want. And not just a want, but a want you have to work harder and harder to rationalize to yourself. Companies like Airbnb, for example, immediately feel this change in temperature. Bookings go down. Revenues fall. Inventory builds up at large retailers like Target and Walmart, 43 and 32% down year over year, respectively. That has historically led to both big chains missing their revenue numbers. And that's just what happened now. Not by a lot, but enough to make everybody pause. And our anticipation is that it will continue. If you're in the tech industry, uh, you're probably noticing many regular companies announcing reductions in force right now. Step three, companies start playing the better game hard. Demand has started falling, which means companies that have employees to pay and investors to keep happy need to work twice as hard to earn the same amount of money they did a few months prior. Their entire strategy becomes to catch demand. As a result, they fall into the better trap, which is another one of our Category Pirates mini books, which is often my deal and discount is better than everyone else's. These companies believe there is a fixed number of people willing to spend money in this current environment, and they become myopic about convincing those select few customers to shop with them, as opposed to one of their competitors, who are furiously doing exactly the same thing. Step four, customer acquisition costs go up. Before the recession, customer acquisition costs were X. Now they are two or three or five times higher. For every dollar you used to spend acquiring a new customer, you now have to spend two. 
This chops your profit margins down a size, which accelerates the existential threat to your company. Some tech startups burn half of their venture investors' money on demand capture with Google and Facebook. And executives who've already dug themselves a deep competition hole drive their CAC, customer acquisition cost, through the roof as they try desperately to catch the falling demand knife in downturns. As a side note, we recently talked to a uh, CEO of a very well-known public company, and their category has been in trouble for a while, and they've tried all sorts of things, and the last thing they tried was a $25 million ad campaign, and it didn't change their revenue because in their case, they had a category problem. It's a great example of a company trying to catch the falling demand knife. Step five, cash flow goes in the wrong direction. Lowered revenue and profit margins lead to lower cash flow, which means now you're spending more to make less cash. But it's not just you. It's you, plus all of your competitors, plus all the other tangentially related companies in your industry, plus all the other companies that have cash flow going in the wrong direction. As a result, cost of capital increases as valuations and market caps go down, while debt and credit financing go up with interest rates. Eventually, your company runs out of money. Here's the short version of that. One, recession hits. Two, demand falls. Three, people market hard to catch demand. Four, customer acquisition costs, CAC, go up. Five, people market even harder to catch demand. Six, demand continues to decrease. Seven, CAC continues to go up. Eight, companies market even harder and discount and so forth to catch demand. Nine, repeat until 10. Run out of money and run out of time. And mark our words. Watch what happens. You'll see this in category after category after category. Recessions are the worst time to fight for demand. And recessions are a great time to create demand. The truth is you never want to be in a position where you have to fight for demand. Again, we call this the better trap. But in a tightened environment, fighting for demand is the equivalent of trying to run a marathon while simultaneously holding your breath. Running is taxing, and depriving yourself of what you need to breathe is also taxing. Both, at the same time, is the worst idea you could have. Instead, especially in a recession, the people who know how to create demand become most in demand. And as a side note, given I've spent my professional life being a category designer, I can tell you that demand personally for me always goes up in recessions and uh, around here and uh, probably more importantly, the great category designers in the world that I know uh, people like Al Ramadan, people like Kevin Maney and Mike Damphouse and many others are all sharing with me that they are experiencing an increase in demand right now because the people who know how to create demand become in demand in a recession. All right. They create what is suddenly urgent, important, and most useful in the world. They remove themselves from comparison conversations and educate customers on different problems, solutions, and outcomes that they likely haven't considered before. They allow competitive companies to waste their resources fighting with each other 
and leverage this unique period of time to create net new opportunities for themselves and the customers they want to serve. They force a choice, not a comparison. And they elevate the value of what they do at the category level, not the product slash service level. Here's how. Your money-making recession strategy. Step one, create high-value, non-obvious insights. We wrote about this in our mini-book, The Art of Fresh Thinking, that was in part inspired by the work of uh, Roger Martin, who many people think is the greatest management thinker around, and he was recently on Follow Your Different. Non-obvious insights are what unlock exponential value that did not exist before. That's what makes them non-obvious. How you find them is by auditing today's newest, hottest, and most popular solutions. Because today's solutions create tomorrow's problems. And tomorrow's problems create category opportunities. By auditing the solutions society values most heavily today, what you're going to find are emerging potential categories with strong tailwinds behind them. And solving tomorrow's problems before anyone else is just another way of saying solving non-obvious problems. And these problems are non-obvious because the world hasn't realized which way the wind is blowing yet, which means you can be the first to frame tomorrow's problems, provide a solution, and own the category of outcome. For example, let's pick up the story from the uh, downturn cycle of doom. You want to build up cash reserves. But both equity and debt capital markets are unattractive. What can you do? Look within your value chain by turning to your super consumers or suppliers, or maybe both. Supers are the most recession-proof part of the economy because they have certainty of demand that lasts decades longer than any economic cycle. They are also the savviest consumers in the category. So make them an offer they can't refuse. Create a bulk bundle that gives them a great volume discount. Subscriptionize your product or service in a longer-term deal that gives you cash up front for services in the future. Cash now is always better than cash later. But there is another growth secret about supers. If you are radically different and deliver transformational outcomes, they will never let you go. The very last BlackBerry users held on until January 4th, 2022, until the company pulled the plug. They were supers. These supers hold on because they need you. The category is part of their identity. It's built into a part of their work and broader life. They've invested money, time, and in some cases, part of their spirit into the category and the category leader's brand and offerings. Another great example, during the early 2000s, Microsoft stopped innovating for about a decade. They took 10 years off. They did very little product, technology, and category innovation and ended up missing the entire cloud category. You'd think they would have crumbled and competition would obviously overtake Microsoft with clearly, quote-unquote, better products. So why is Microsoft still one of the most successful and valuable companies in the world? Supers wouldn't, or couldn't, let them go. Microsoft had approximately 90,000 employees, 640,000 partners, and a billion users in 2010. 
all with exorbitant switching costs and huge investments with Microsoft. So driven by the trend-setting supers, the category held on. And even as Microsoft looked like it was becoming the new Wang Laboratories, then once they started to innovate and create and redesign categories under the leadership of Satya Nadella, they executed one of the greatest turnarounds in history. Said a little differently, Pirate Eddie, Eddie Yoon, is an electric vehicle slash Tesla super. Pirate Christopher, myself, on the other hand, refuses to buy one. He loves American muscle cars and has a deep personal relationship with his 2014 662 horsepower Shelby Cobra Mustang. Category first, brand second. And no amount of marketing will ever get Pirate Christopher, that is to say me, to buy a Tesla or Pirate Eddie to buy a Shelby Cobra Mustang. Instead, marketing dollars would be better spent educating a super like Pirate Eddie on why he should pre-order the new Tesla Cybertruck, or a super like Pirate Christopher on why he should buy a handful of vintage collectible Mustang parts uh, for his classic Shelby Cobra. Instead of trying to market to new customers, consider how you can increase cash flow by getting your supers to open up their wallets and buy more of what they already clearly love. Here's another example. Guitar players universally respect and many love the legendary Gibson. I sure do. But after expanding recklessly into adjacent categories with a competitive slash comparison mindset, the company collapsed into bankruptcy. Old management out. Then new CEO J.C. Curley declared a, quote, true roots initiative. Translation, we're going to focus on our supers in our core categories with our most legendary products and brands. This one's also very interesting. The company, after very strong complaints from supers, also stopped attacking smaller knockoff competitors and created a, quote, authorized partnership program with boutique guitar makers. This is a legendary example of a strategy that expands the category potential while diverting attention and resources from competing to monetizing collaboration at the same time. And it works for companies of all sizes. Satya Nadella and Microsoft did the same. Quote, so it is notable that Nadella has put Microsoft back at the top of the tech heap without attracting the resentment and anxiety provoked by some other tech leaders, or for that matter, Microsoft's former self. The software company was once considered to be the model of the corporate bully, using its dominance over PC software to hold sway over the tech world, end quote, the LA Times. But big suppliers also have an interest in making sure their partners whom they sell through survive a downturn. Sometimes the same company or person can be both super consumer and supplier. The most legendary example of this is when Microsoft invested $150 million into Apple, effectively saving the company from bankruptcy in 1997. In exchange, Microsoft provided Office to Macs and Apple made Internet Explorer the default browser, which helped Microsoft appear less monopolistic as it was negotiating a lawsuit with the government. And uh, in the mini book newsletter here, we've got this incredible photo. And if you've never seen it, check it out uh, in the show notes or just Google it. It's um, Steve Jobs 
kneeling, uh, a, a sort of in a catcher's like position, bent down on a phone, on an old school Motorola flip phone on the cover of Time. And uh, in big font, it says, quote, Bill, thank you. The world's a better place. Steve Jobs talking to Bill Gates by cell phone last week about saving Apple. Quote, in a way, you could say it might have been the craziest thing we ever did. But, you know, they've taken the foundation of great innovation, some cash and turned it into the most valuable company in the world. End quote. Steve Ballmer, former CEO of Microsoft in 2015. So next time you look at your iPhone, iPad or Apple Watch, make sure you say thank you to Steve Ballmer. We'd bet you the Brooklyn Bridge that it took a lot of non-obvious thinking from both Mr. Bomber and Mr. Gates before getting that buck 50 to jobs. Today, both Apple and Microsoft are two of the most valuable companies in the world with multi-trillion dollar market caps. And Microsoft made around 550 million from its Apple lifeline, a 260% gain in just six years. As a side note, of course, the obvious is if they'd held on for a lot longer, they would have made a shit ton more money. Anyways, I digress. These are the uh, kinds of non-obvious insights much of the business world tends to avoid looking for and thinking about. Why would we ever help our competition? But these non-obvious insights are often what lead to incredible opportunities and abundance for all. Step two, convert your non-obvious insights into intellectual capital. The legendary Peter Drucker was the one who named and claimed the idea of being a knowledge worker as someone who earns money with her or his mind, not their muscles. But he first coined this term back in 1959. And the world has changed dramatically since then. In a world where information is a commodity, where a seven-year-old can ask their smartphone how many home runs Babe Ruth hit, or how many stars there are in our galaxy, having knowledge today isn't nearly as valuable as it used to be. When Drucker invented the term knowledge worker, the game of business and life was to acquire knowledge, then apply knowledge. A doctor gets paid per hour to apply their knowledge of medicine. A lawyer gets paid per hour to apply their knowledge of the law, etc. Today, the game is to acquire knowledge, leverage non-obvious insights to build upon that knowledge and create net new intellectual capital. This is knowledge that did not exist before you took the time to draw a conclusion between two or more disparate and maybe even conflicting ideas or data points. And how do you find these non-obvious insights? Again, talk to your supers and do some serious thinking. Most companies launch innovations after months or even years of prep work behind the scenes, only to let their big grand reveal fall on deaf ears. Remember that company I told you about who spent $25 million in demand capture advertising to get nothing for it? But savvy companies understand that super consumers can be a source of precious real-time feedback in a soft launch that dramatically increases the odds of success. Tesla is doing this right now with its full self-service driving beta, releasing it to only 100,000 users who will use it safely and provide massive amounts of data to optimize and improve the feature before its full rollout. Or another example, 
Safeway, the supermarket chain, used to test its private label innovations in just a few stores, get feedback, and then optimize and roll them out nationally afterwards. Michael Fox, the former chief marketing officer of consumer brands at Safeway, and now the CEO of California Olive Ranch, noted that their innovation success rates were much higher than they were back in his Frito-Lay days, where he had significantly more resources. But supers don't just have to be your customers. Supers among your employees are some of the best sources of non-obvious insights. When Steve Hughes was at Tropicana, he was walking around the factory floor when he saw some of the workers enjoying a glass of orange juice right after their shift. Right then he noticed something non-obvious. They were putting the pulp that the factory had just painstakingly removed back into the glass. He asked them, why? And they said it tasted even more like fresh squeezed orange juice. Steve took that non-obvious insight and led the creation of Tropicana Grove Stand with Pulp, which became a billion-dollar product. The takeaway here? Don't think of innovation as something that has to happen in a vacuum. We know too many founders, business owners, executives, and investors who need to feel like they were the ones who came up with the company's big game-changing idea. Look, if you do that, that's awesome. However, instead of relying on it, talk to your supers customers, clients, and employees. Ask them questions. Let them tell you what their biggest pain points are and their wants and needs and hopes and dreams for the category. See what they are doing and join in. Supers will usually tell you the right answer or at least point you in the right direction if you take the time to listen. And as a side note, what most people call listening is actually called waiting to talk. And we all do it. So try to really listen and then try to really think. But I digress. Step three, convert your intellectual capital into digital products, services, and businesses. When you create intellectual capital, you have something no one else does, which means you no longer have to fight for demand. You create it. Even in a tightened economic environment, you have the opportunity to educate people on your new, different, non-obvious insights. During times of crisis or change, people are naturally more open to different ideas. They are very aware they are living in an obviously different world. Think about the COVID-19 pandemic, which challenges their historical assumptions, which opens the aperture of their minds and makes them more willing than normal to consider a non-obvious, different future. And all of the new categories that can or should exist in that new and different future. Non-obvious insights are significantly more valuable than obvious commodity insights, things the world has already priced and already determined whether they want or do not want, which means you can charge more for them. Look at you thriving in a downturn. In addition, when you can plug your intellectual capital into a frictionless, infinitely scalable digital platforms and products, You can also monetize your knowledge in a way traditional knowledge workers cannot. That's the beauty of software, newsletters, websites, podcasts, and content. A doctor only gets paid when she or he performs a surgery. And a lawyer only gets paid when she or he accumulates billable hours. 
But these rules are not true for a SaaS company or any form of digital content slash creation. These are build once, scale massively at insane margin businesses that go ka-ching, chitty-ching, ching, 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 as in an old school cash register. Getting paid in the future for non-obvious insights you created, published in the past is intellectual capital. We want to be clear here, though. Intellectual capital isn't just theory for professional services firms. It is a strategic asset that turns into an economic asset. For intellectual capital to be given a value or a price, it needs a market where buyers and sellers agree, which means you either have to plug your intellectual capital into a marketplace that connects supers and suppliers that maximizes monetization and or mindshare, or you need to create one yourself. For example, a few years after avoiding bankruptcy, Apple launched the iPod and the iTunes store in 2001. iTunes was the intellectual capital pivot from Apple being a product and software and hardware manufacturer to an intellectual capital-based ecosystem. Both iTunes and the App Store are an intellectual capital marketplace platform where supers and suppliers can meet and transact, all while Apple takes a cut, but also ensures its relevance as a center of gravity in the category. Now, obviously, not every business is going to create a multi-billion dollar next-gen marketplace. That's not what we're saying. Digital content slash products is the lowest barrier entry way to scale your non-obvious thinking and intellectual capital in a way that does not require you to show up at the office, perform surgeries, and or rack up billable hours. It takes approximately six to 10 hours per week to write each Category Pirates mini book. And this amount of time, energy, and effort remains constant, whether six, 600, 6,000, or 6 million people read it. Allowing our earnings and as writers and intellectual capitalists to be infinitely scalable, which is the opposite of even the most prestigious legacy knowledge work where income scales linearly. Linearly? Linearly? I don't know, my tongue's having a hard time with linearly. <laughs> linearly today. <laughs> anyway, you get my point. And by way of information, uh, my podcasts have been downloaded in 190 countries. And uh, while I've done a lot of traveling, I've never been to many of the places uh, my work is downloaded in. And that's now true with Category Pirates and the books that we write. Even the highest paid knowledge workers today are beginning to wake up to the fact that life is much better when you're an intellectual capitalist, which is why 86% of native digitals want to become creators, not lawyers. Step four. Design new categories for new digital products, services, businesses. Once you build the skill of being able to spot and create non-obvious insights and turn those insights into unique, differentiated, one-of-a-kind intellectual capital, you can create net new categories in the world over and over again. Again, the people who know how to create demand become most in demand. Apple used its early success with iTunes to build more marketplace platforms like the App Store where consumers could not only transact, but also create and commercialize. And Whole Foods 
has gotten its local and emerging accelerator program, Leap, to incubate new brands and categories to be sold in its stores. Jeff Bezos, who has recently let loose on Twitter, tweeted a cover of a 2006 Businessweek magazine article calling his software bet risky. The bet was predicated on the non-obvious insight that Amazon's B2C growth required more computing power, but that building Amazon's cloud capabilities could also be remonetized as a B2B service. That software, of course, became AWS, which generated $62 billion in revenue last year and independent of its parent company, AWS, is one of the greatest B2B tech companies ever. The big idea here is to consider what costs can you turn into revenue-generating machines. Instead of just assuming every business needs to spend money on marketing or fulfillment or distribution or customer service, how can you create new categories, products, and services that turn those cost centers into revenue generators? For example, here's one way we've done this with Category Pirates. You give us our book advance, not a big publisher. When we originally started Category Pirates, we just wanted to write a book. And most people who want to write a book consider the legacy business model for writing books. Pitch a publisher, get an advance, give up 85% or more ownership in the book, publish it two years later. By the way, we had multiple publishers interested in uh, what we were thinking about at the time, just saying. Um, the cost here, however, is that even though you get paid some upfront money, you have to give up a majority long-term ownership. Instead, we flipped the model on its head and decided not to write a book first, but to write our book in public via a paid newsletter. This allowed us to, one, build an audience while we explored new material, as opposed to uh, building an audience in the ninth hour right before the book launch. Two, charge per month or per year, as opposed to for one book, unlocking more digestible, read-at-your-own-pace content for readers, and more financial upside for us. Most authors charge about $20 per book. We charge $20 per month or $200 per year. That's a 10x difference. Three, have readers pay our advance to write the book. Instead of a publisher giving us $50,000 or even $100,000 up front, and then taking 85% ownership of the book, readers pay us $20 a month or $200 a year, giving us some cash now and essentially paying us to write, which means we no longer have to pay the cost of giving up the 85% ownership to a publisher. And number four, this has been something incredible for us to personally experience. Our supers buy both the newsletter and the book. When we published our first two big books last year, 2021, the Category Design Toolkit and a Marketer's Guide to Category Design, we learned that our supers didn't want one or the other, the newsletter content or the big book content. They wanted copies of both. Remember, supers buy more, more often. These types of opportunities exist everywhere. And together with your supers, you should be able to learn what cost centers you can turn into revenue-generating win-win scenarios for you and your most enthusiastic intellectual capital consumers. Step five, market your new and different category and win. Businesses that thrive in recessions have no competition. 
They avoid the company downturn cycle of doom completely. They do not waste their time trying to catch what little existing demand is left for products and services the world may have concluded in an instant no longer serve them. Instead, these category creators use their time, energy, and resources to create net new demand by solving tomorrow's problems today. As a side note, I was recently at a barbecue with an entrepreneur who co-founded a company in the clothing industry 25 years ago with his brother. Now, without boring you with all the details of how their business works, they have a very unique category position and they play in a very important part of the supply chain in the uh, clothing, particularly athletic clothing business. And so I asked him, his name was Stu. Hey, Stu, you know, what typically happens to your company in a downturn? He said, well, you know, we will feel it, but we'll be down maybe about 15%. And it always presents us with new opportunities to innovate. And so even if we take a short-term hit because of kind of our relationships with our ecosystem, our partners, our suppliers, our customers, uh, he says, generally, we take some short-term pain, but we come out stronger. That's exactly what we love to hear around here. Okay, so instead, these category creators use their time, energy, and resources to create net due demand by solving tomorrow's problems today, exactly like Stu did. And as a result, they emerge victorious. Apple will be increasingly known as a subscription and marketplace company versus a hardware company. Whole Foods may increasingly be known as a venture company incubating and or investing in new products as much as a grocer. Amazon will increasingly be known as a B2B services and technology company as it is a B2C e-commerce retailer. Now is no time to work on the incremental. Repeat this over and over again to yourself like a, like a mantra. Now is no time to work on the incremental. When the world is thrown off balance, now is not the time to batten down the hatches and fight over a limited number of resources. That's not what the world needs, and that's not what you need in order to thrive. Instead, this is your chance to create what has not been created. As we said at the beginning of this mini book, some of the world's most legendary companies were born out of downturns. This is not an expectation for you to go create the next Google or Uber, but it should serve as a reminder and a rally cry for your full potential. Now is no time to work on the incremental. Our category pirates, Eddie Yoon, Nicholas Cole, and myself, Christopher Lockhead. P.S. When the going gets tough, the tough design new categories. <laughs>